The title of this evening's talk is Impermanence, the Gateway to Liberation. And from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe, what is life? It's a flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. In a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity or gas for light, for warmth, and for cooking. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth, and cooking, a fire is necessary. To start a new fire without matches every day is a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area never let their fires go completely out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning, there are at least a few coals to start their day with. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night, they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they finished, really finished. So every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is that everything changes. So, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. It was the initial initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to awakening. 
Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha-to-be, grew up in very comfortable and very protected surroundings in an area at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal. Seemingly living the good life, his father and mother were the king and the queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. At his birth, at Siddhartha's birth, a, a seer, a wise man, told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or if he encountered enough suffering that he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher. His parents in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloom, one where blue lotuses bloom and one where white lotuses bloom, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that wasn't from Benares. My turban was was of silk, also from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garment, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and do. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I didn't come down once during the rainy season from that palace. But all of this protection, luxury, and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. He wasn't satisfied. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own and see what it was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend, Shana, the chariot driver, to take him out for a ride through town. His father heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But as we know, it's just not possible to control life this way. Not long after they were out beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking along the road with a lot of difficulty, covered with oozing sores. He'd never seen anything like this before. He asked Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick, I'll get sick, your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha, who'd been so protected, 
that he'd never seen such a sick person before. And he was very disturbed by this sight and wanted to go home and spent a restless night that night. But the next day he wanted to go out again. As they were down the road just a bit that next day, Siddhartha saw someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin with very thin, wispy, gray hair. He'd never seen anything like this before. What's the matter with this person, Channa? And his friend replied, this is an old person, a very old person. Everyone gets old. You will, I will, your parents will. All your friends, they'll get old too. Well, Siddhartha wanted to go back to the palace and spent another very restless night. But the next day, he wanted to go out again, and so they did. As they got closer to the village, he saw a group of people who were all dressed in white, and they were crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with what looked like the form of a body on it that was covered with some cloth. And Siddhartha asked his friend, what's this? What's going on here, and why are they crying, and what are they carrying? And Chana replied, this is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everybody dies. I will, you will, your parents will. Everyone dies. Well, this was quite disturbing to young Siddhartha. And he said, enough, enough today, let's go home. That night he barely slept. But again, the next morning he wanted to go out. Not long after they were riding down the road in the chariot, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth. He was walking down the road. He was walking with a lightness, a grace, and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana responded, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. Siddhartha responded, this is enough. Let's go home. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, that these sights that he saw sickness, old age, death, and a renunciate or a truth seeker struck him very deeply, very profoundly. These four heavenly messengers, as they're called in the texts, struck young Siddhartha very deeply. He was moved by the impermanent and insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relation to these first three encounters. He found himself interested and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, 
seeking the truth. And again from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, himself or herself, subject to aging, to illness and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead. He or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to herself or himself that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication, and this word intoxication is an important one, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, and intoxication with life. And then the Buddha went on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, often quite unconsciously, is the myth of things somehow staying the same. The myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very surely and very clearly the momentariness of all appearances. The powerful, direct experience and the deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in the clarity of this seeing and knowing. And again from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. What has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. 
everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath, the world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, so permanently in place. A couple of years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on the front side. Some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was quite a pleasure. I turned the card over and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covering this area created, at that time, the limestone reef today known as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. I turned the card over and looked at the photo again with a different eye, we could say, and yet, and yet still with quite a pleasurable feeling. The places we live in appear as though they've forever been the way they are now. Our attitude and our actions often reflect this. When I taught in Israel, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is, I found out that Jerusalem, a city built of stone on stone, Jerusalem stone you may have heard of, That city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. We look up into the sky, no matter where we are on this planet, and we see stars and formations of stars that are familiar. They're like old friends in their familiarity. And this is... uh, a piece that I found in the newspaper a little while ago. Our Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It then would take perhaps 10 million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, 
old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, save for perhaps the 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond our solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, says Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. Takes a scientist to figure that one out. However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. Our world can't be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun. It's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. We mostly know it intellectually. And actually, even more often, we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed our appointment with life, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control. We, have, we believe that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality, and that the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is.
So another good question you might ask yourself sometimes, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to all of it very tightly. How often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation? As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind through our practice, we begin to touch directly to know experientially the constant rapidity of change from the seeming solid substantiality of form to the smaller micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan teaching that tells us all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I was told was true about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and all of its components, breaking it all down and finding nothing really substantial. It's said that at that point he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths? Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life. Without impermanence, actually, there would be no life. And again from Thich Nhat Hanh, if there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you'll never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And this is a a poem by a man named Red Hawk called The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go. But he's not free enough to weep, so he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat, 
where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly, boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower, dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight. And he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now, that his daughter is departed. To harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting and one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, change, impermanence, is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process not getting caught up, getting lost and sinking in hopes, fears, attachments, and regrets. And this is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance, a kind of radical acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, of our nature as nature? There are many doors, many mirrors for us in our practice, in our life. It's said that there are 84,000 dharma doors that we can go through. So, for instance, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Quite a number of years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, the buildings just down the road from here, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out behind the buildings. And it was during the height of autumn color. I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering greens and golds. It was incredibly beautiful. I was quite immersed in the experience And then all of a sudden, a knowing came in. Not through thought. Not at all through thought. But a very deep, intuitive knowing that this beauty is death. 
The world is dying in its unbearable beauty. Well, I cried for about three and a half days after that experience. Not continuously, but a lot, off and on. And at times quite deeply. And as some of you know, um, on a very long retreat, you can do that if you need to. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say. Feeling my heart breaking. And at the same time, there was an elation. It was an opening. An opening and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realize the world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light to dark, snowstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, the seasons, the movement of the breath through the body, Mary Oliver writes about this in her unique and beautiful way. Look, the trees are turning their bodies into pillars of light and are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and then when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. as we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts. Quickly followed along by clinging on to the thoughts, feelings, and emotional states all of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to see experience more directly, clearly, and more often. And we begin to see that the things, the phenomena of our life, aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to see the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as 
process happening as changing sensations, changing feelings, or as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities, flavors, textures that are in themselves constantly changing also. And so our relationship to all the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what's actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath the impetus to control, the fear in being with life as it is, begins to relax, open, and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. Occasionally people ask me, as I'm sure you probably sometimes ask yourself, and maybe ask others who meditate, why do you practice? At one point I was asked this, and uh, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so I am. So it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I might have the great strength and clarity of mindfulness to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will really be an extraordinary moment. But actually, it will probably be just like any other moment, just another moment with all the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with, to be with what's happening right here, right now, in the body, in the mind, in the heart. A moment like any other moment to just be with things as they are, to just be who you are a moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way, actually. A beginner's mind moment, a don't-know mind moment, a moment that's never been experienced before. So I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment. But the momentary reality of practice right now is that I practice being present with the death, the cessation of my 
conditioned self. The death of the habitually learned patterns that keep making, keep recreating the assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid self. And through the process of practice, seeing how selfing keeps happening and letting go, relinquishing this again and again and again. I'm practicing to see the death of who I've thought I was and the birth or the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath, and in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomenon. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, of I, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through practice more and more, just as process, beginning and ending, again and again, every moment, actually every second, if we're really attentive. What appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though the phenomena happens with an ongoing continuous flow, when in reality it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And this is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāna. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāna? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as, as, as impermanent, sees eye consciousness as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition whether pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, as impermanent. She or he he sees the ear as impermanent, sees mind or mental phenomena as impermanent, sees sees mind consciousness as impermanent, sees mind contact as impermanent. Whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, sees it as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāna.
the acceptance of change, of the forming and unforming, of the birth and the death, is actually, truly, the acceptance of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed at times. Pleasant experience changes into unpleasant experience or vice versa. Pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs or rightful rejections. We're happy. We're unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment. As we open and see more clearly, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less and less judgment. We might begin to see that we are also still, to whatever degree, acting out of and have acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness many times. we begin to see ourselves as having acted out of or more accurately reacted out of old conditioned habitual places of suffering ourselves many, many times. And so we change. We begin to meet ourselves as well as others with more and more compassion. This is from... Zen Master Dogen, 13th century Zen Master Dogen. He defined Buddha nature as being impermanence. He says, he said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight the great compassion, impartial care, love that may include one's enemy. Many of us, probably most of us, have had, probably had, a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of the mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange, it's so strange. I see an old woman. 
I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And once when she was 91 and she was, we were doing this together, she said, I look older than anybody else in the whole world. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. And then again she said, it's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? Is it really strange? Stranger than what? It's just life, life doing its thing, life being lifey. In a poem that was given to, be, uh, given to me by one of my Israeli students called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt, Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our face all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in in a net of grieving nerves fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us. Graciously they prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? Just really focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? And a piece from Stephen Mitchell, his rendition of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into this so taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image 
would disappear. And again, the mirror of nature as a teacher of impermanence and another three-month retreat story. I was sitting out behind the small dining room watching the grasses every day. It was late fall and the grass was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape curling over, changing form. And I was noticing this all quite acutely. Are we different than this? Are we really any different than this? What's the dharma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use or how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take, how much yoga we do or tai chi or how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep and there's nothing we can do about it. And this is a poem by Liesel Mueller called Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair with gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light like the juice in the power line. My baggage swallowed by memory weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. When I was 18 years old, my uh, best high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays there. And on our way home, which was Labor Day, we had an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was quite amazing. One moment she was alive and she was driving a car and we'd had three wonderful days together. And then the next moment, she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. Myself with just a few scrapes and bruises on my knees and my feet. And I was washing her dying body with water. And then the next moment, she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. 
not very long after she died, I made a resolve to myself that I would live every moment fully. Or I think I actually resolved that I would live every second fully. Because now I knew that it could end in a second. And of course I've forgotten my resolve many, many times. But I've also remembered it many, many times. This whole experience with its particular clear insight into impermanence was a big part of what guided me towards spiritual practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I wouldn't have worded it that way. It's been interesting to see how this resolve to live every moment fully has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. So living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. This letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to primarily be a letting go of that which doesn't serve awakening. It's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice, a decision made between this and that. But very often it's a matter of really paying attention, paying a very mindful attention being present and responding however it's most appropriate in whatever ways are clearly the healthiest both for oneself and others at particular times, in particular situations. Which means letting go of, renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging both inwardly and outwardly, giving up attachments, letting go, relinquishing, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who we're closest to, but maybe rather relating to them in what might be a radically new way. And this is from a Cherokee Feast of Days. Autumn, can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because clear seeing of impermanence leads to the end of confusion and anguish. 
clear and sure insight into impermanence leads to understanding the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very clearly the momentariness of all appearances leads to the understanding of the conditional nature of all phenomena, the selfless, empty nature of all things, which includes our self. This insight being the seed and a primary fruit of liberation. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security and impermanence doesn't. But in actuality, although change may be very difficult and sometimes quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and get to know it more and more deeply, Anicca can be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. And we may also come to realize that on one level, it's really one of the gifts of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. In 1985, my house burned down. No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we had arrived at my mother's, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. He called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. And my first response to him was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, who would uh, call a friend uh, long distance and say that as a joke? So after we finished our very brief phone conversation, I hung up the telephone and I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing next to me, just held me, didn't ask any questions, just put her arms around me. And then my brother, who was also visiting my mother at this time, he and I sat down and talked. By the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say. In Asian countries, it's not unusual for people in their 40s or 50s whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live out the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a somewhat long uh, story short, I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently. 
And then I continued in a similar way after I came back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that is still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. And from Carlos Castaneda. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to yourself, turn to your left, and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death just makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. As we touch and begin to accept that radical kind of acceptance, the dance that life is in all of its manifestations, our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance, an equanimity, and a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom. We live so much more fully in the present moment, seeing all the phenomena of body, heart, and mind, and the whole dance and play of life around us as continually changing, self-arising, self-liberating, coming in and going out, forming and unforming. We're more and more with life just as it is, within the very natural, innate spaciousness, openness, and clarity of our awareness. As we wake up to the impermanent, conditioned nature of all phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. We're responding to life here and now in the moment with an authentic and bright liveliness as it dances through us and around us. We're just simply here with the passing show. And again from the Buddha. This existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. Living more deeply with the acceptance of impermanence allows us to respond more freshly to what in reality is completely new. A moment, every moment, any moment, never before met never before experienced. As we practice mindfulness, immediate presence, 
we practice seeing clearly. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And it's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no independently existing, separate, solid, static, anything. No self. We begin to understand that we are all part of this intricate, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and the suffering of others, the suffering created by trying to hold on, the anguish created by resistance, resistance to the truth that every facet of life surrounding us and in us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. And from the Buddha, contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. As the understanding of impermanence deepens, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. And there's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And I'd like to close the talk with a short poem by an Australian poet named Michael Lunig. He's also a cartoonist. And with each poem, he draws a little cartoon. So I'll describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. It's a line drawing of a man, and he has his left arm stretched out straight to his side, uh, up, and in his hand, he's holding a frying pan. And in the frying pan, there's a big blob of of dark-looking stuff and billowing smoke coming out of it. And his head is turned and looking at that with his eyes very wide open. And this is the poem that goes with that cartoon. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks.
And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.